Being a window cleaner is a really, really tough job. You're hanging a thousand feet in the air, doing manual labor. It can be 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside, or it can be 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Each building's height is different. The wind is different, different days. And the small number of people who are willing to still do the job are heroes. And while we have great safety regulations in the United States and mostly in Western Europe as well, there are many other parts of the world where safety incidents unfortunately do happen every single day. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. We love robots. On this show, we've talked about crime-fighting robots, autonomous tractors, even a painting robot. Well, this week, we got a glimpse of a $40 billion problem solved by a different kind of robot. We are all familiar with King Kong and Spider-Man scaling skyscrapers, but the next time you're in New York City or Tel Aviv, look up. You might just see Osmo, the window-washing robot, at work high above. Osmo is basically a giant robotic arm that is really, really good at doing one thing, cleaning windows, thousands of feet above the ground without fear of falling. It's the brainchild of the team at Skyline Robotics. Today's guest is Ross Blum, president and COO of Skyline, who teamed up with fellow serial entrepreneur, Michael Brown, and inventor and roboticist, Avi Abadi, bring Osmo to life. We talked to Ross about why this dull, dirty, and dangerous job is ripe for disruption, and how Osmo is going to change the future of the field known as facade access. So today, we're going to get dirty. We're going to talk about the dirtiness of window washing. Before we do that, we get to jump into what you're doing now and how you're disrupting the market. You live in New York City, but where did you grow up? I grew up right here in New York City, born and bred here in Manhattan and accustomed to being surrounded by skyscrapers. We grew up in a pretty unique environment uh, on the Upper East Side. You get access to a lot of things. Not every kid gets to go to the Natural History Museum every time that they want to go to the Natural History Museum or go to Central Park. But people often say to me, didn't you miss like having a backyard when you were a kid? And I was like, well, the park was a block away and my friends went there with me every single day. So we might not have had a traditional backyard, but we had plenty of space to run around and enjoy ourselves. You know, I think that when people come here, especially for the first time, they hear a lot of noises, sirens, people, and this sort of like cacophonous effect of everything that's happening here in New York City. To me, that was just what I grew up with. That was just every single day. And so when I did go to college and I was in the suburbs somewhere, I was like, why is everything so quiet all the time? So then you go off to Babson College. How did you choose Babson? What attracted you to the program? Babson really stood out to me because they had a focus on entrepreneurship. 
So even from the first semester that you're in the school, they're actually preparing you to run a business in your second semester at the school. So every single student in collaboration with their classmates in a course called FME, the Foundations of Management and Entrepreneurship, you actually sort of do rocket pitches with a few of your classmates. The class votes on which sort of ideas actually progress to the next round. Each team gets a little bit bigger as some are being eliminated. And in your second semester, the college actually funds you running the business. And so the Babson would give you up to $5,000 for each business. The business that I was a part of was a business called Groceries to Go. So we thought that Costco was great, but not everyone on the college campus had a Costco card. So why don't we set up a website and a delivery service just for our college where Costco would be our supplier. People could order stuff on our website and we would deliver the food to their door for a fee. Otherwise, we would deliver it to the campus center and they could come pick it up there. So at the end of the day, I think we took about, I want to say it was about $3,800 from the school to help us build a website and get that up and running. And at the end of the semester, I think revenues were about six or $7,000. And what we did and what every class has to do is you partner with a charitable organization and you go and do community service with them. And then anything that goes above and beyond paying the school back gets donated to the charity of the classroom's choice. So it's almost like a micro Instacart. A hundred percent, but definitely on a smaller scale, of course, just on one college campus. But really, there's nothing like learning about how to run a business, like running a business. So we had a, a business side of the organization. We had a marketing team. We had the engineering side of the company. We had HR and customer service and things like that. And it's nice to learn about this stuff in a textbook or read about it in a book. It's another thing to totally actually do it with 29 of your classmates and actually like figure out how to make this successful. After college, Ross took his passion for sports and business to Georgetown, where he earned a master's degree in sports management. He was especially drawn towards marketing and sports law at this time and still feeling the entrepreneurial bug. He went on to get a law degree from Cardoza before diving into startups. All that preparation paid off. By his mid-20s, Ross proceeded to negotiate two successful exits in quick succession. Here we talk about the lead-up to his work at Skyline. After passing the bar, I did look for a legal role in a tech startup, and I joined a company called PingMD. At PingMD, we were a HIPAA-compliant secure communications platform doing everything from telehealth all the way through sort of back office services in terms of scheduling for small doctor's offices as well as hospitals. I started off in a legal capacity, but within about two or three months, my role began expanding into the sales side of the business, the marketing side of the business. And about 10 months into my journey at PingMD, I did get a call from the chairman of the company saying they weren't so pleased with the performance of the CEO at the time. I uh, knew that I had a legal background and asked me if I could go sell the company. And so being 26 years old and having no experience doing that, looked at him in the eyes and told him, of course, I could get this done for you. Then I actually had to figure out how to sell a company. So, you know, did my research, built some decks, got the team ready. We built another feature or two on the product that we thought would be good to highlight as well in terms of the capabilities, of the platform that had been built and built a consideration set of buyers. And then it was like on the warpath, right? Trying to, to bang on everyone's doors, get the meetings we wanted to have. 
And um, things began to really start to fall in place. And we were able to get a deal done in about 120 days. Not necessarily a home run deal for everybody, but it was about a 45% sort of capital recovery deal in a pretty short period of time. Yeah. I mean, at age 26 alone, most are just getting started. You were literally playing Monopoly already. And it was like, talk about New York and looking at the financial and the real estate commodities on a Monopoly board. You were in it to win it, which is pretty exciting. You know, it's a city that, uh, let's call it, breeds ambition and arrogance. And it's good to be really ambitious, but unfortunately, too many people in the city also happen to be really arrogant. So it's the type of place where if you want to push yourself and you want to show that you're really made of something, there's very few places on the world that are better to do it. But for me, it's also super, super important that me and none of my friends, candidly, become very arrogant about who we are or what we've done. Because at the end of the day, we're still in our young 30s. We're still trying to have a good time. We haven't figured out everything in our lives. At the end of the day, we just want to be good people that work hard and try to do something pretty cool with our careers at the same time. So let's talk about Skyline. Skyline has its roots in Israel. How did you meet the founder and creator of the first Skyline robot, Osmo? How did that come to fruition? So I was on a family vacation in December 2019. And effectively, my stepbrother, the familial relationship isn't quite that clean. But effectively, my stepbrother is a gentleman named Michael Brown. And Michael told me he was looking at a, a few different opportunities to either make an investment or potentially partner with companies. And because I'd come from the world of startups, if I could sort of help him evaluate a few of the opportunities that he was considering and that he had a few due diligence folders and wanted me to sort of take a look through them. And one of the companies that he had been looking at was Skyline. And so in early 2020, really in January, I opened up the due diligence folder, checked out sort of like the company's history, what the company was planning on doing, how they thought they were going to grow. And really was sort of like astonished that technology like that hadn't already existed and no one else was really having any level of sort of commercial success within this field of either automating window cleaning or just automated facade access work in general. Can you define exactly what Osmo and Skyline's mission is? Skyline Robotics, we want to automate the field of facade access and make it not just more efficient, but safer. It's an incredibly dangerous and grueling job to be on the side of the buildings each and every day. And this labor force has never had a different tool in the last 40 or 50 years to be able to operate differently. And we feel it's our job to provide that really, really high powered and technologically advanced tool, not to simplify what important labor does, but really to minimize the risks as we're pursuing larger and larger buildings with more and more glass and only more and more facades to maintain. So I pulled something, a classified ad for a window washing job in New York City. And this is a real ad on careers.com. We are looking for folks who aren't afraid of getting a little bit dirty in order to make things very, very clean. Also, all applicants need to be comfortable with heights, willing to work weekends, and licensed to drive. By the way, no job experience required. We train you in everything you do. I hope you have experience driving, though, because we can't train you to do that. That's an actual ad. So Osmo, your robot, his resume would read very differently in terms of responding to this type of job. It's smart. It's reliable. It's fearless. 
So can we talk how your window washing robot, Osmo, and the traditional window washer, how do they differ and how can they work together? So from a foundational standpoint, it's a interesting job posting that you came across. It isn't so far away from reality, though. The notion that you said at the end of the job description was no sort of training or certifications required because we'll train you on site. That is not the way that window cleaners 10 years ago and 15 years ago would have been recruited. But unfortunately, being a window cleaner is a really, really tough job. You're hanging a thousand feet in the air, doing manual labor. It can be 40 degrees Fahrenheit outside, or it can be 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And even in a really safe market where we have great OSHA regulations in a city like New York, where the DOL, the Department of Labor, has very appropriate safety regulations in place, unfortunate safety events still can occur. And so when we think about sort of the human component of the training that it really should take to allow someone to be a thousand feet in the air hanging off the side of the building. So many things can go wrong, even whether it's the mechanical equipment, whether it's in the summer, you can have a thunderstorm or lightning. And oftentimes there are situations where clouds appear really quickly and you're in this sort of like metal confined basket and guys are trying to get the basket up to the top of the building so they can get off the basket before a lightning strike may come. But really, the small number of people who are willing to still do the job are heroes. I personally don't think I could do the job myself, but I do understand why it's not as appealing of a job maybe as it once was. So you've been at the top of these buildings. Can you describe that experience of what it's like to be in a cage? So I've never been over the side of a building, I will say that. So I don't have my OSHA certifications that actually give me the permission to be in the basket on the side of a building. But I have been on many rooftops here in New York City. And what I can say is it's the most tremendous view in the world. But when you look down, it's a really far drop. And I personally do have a fear of heights which makes my job choice very interesting because part of my job is going up to the rooftops. But as long as I don't look over the side and look down to the ground, typically I'm okay. But it's not something for the faint of heart, let me tell you that. And even the guys who do this every day, going from one building to the next, each building's height is different, the wind is different, different days. And again, there are safety regulations to try to help everyone operate very safely. But unfortunately, there still can be human error in how things are operated. Nobody's perfect. And unfortunately, not being perfect opens the door to some safety incidents every once in a while. Automated robots are going into diverse places. They're going into food delivery and pizza delivery. And we have robots in warehouses, surgery, crime-fighting robots. Why did it take so long to solve this particular laborious and daunting job? I mean, what was in the creation of Osmo that you decided to pick this task, which is garbage, street sweeping, or some other things that could be ready to change within the landscape of things? So I joined the company after the company had started, and I'm really proud to be a part of this company because it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. But this concept of automated facade access is something that was really born out of two gentlemen in Israel. 
and the sort of like engineering side of it of really how to make this possible as led by our founder and CTO, Avi Abadi. And Avi had been a roboticist ever since the time he was a young boy, always playing around with things, a mechanical engineer and sort of like professional trade, but with a focus on mechatronics and things like that. And when Avi was sort of envisioning these sort of like dull, dangerous and dirty fields that maybe he could create a technology to help support, it candidly seemed like no one was focused on this industry and that no one was really trying to focus their technology to help real estate assets. And really the notion behind Osmo is that window cleaning is just the beginning and that the solution that we're intending to build is really to do what we say internally is own the facade. And so beyond window cleaning, there's things like inspection services, polishing, masonry, water pressure testing, heat testing, and other factors like that, that really provide a unique opportunity where the highly skilled labor market is shrinking very, very quickly at the moment, not just on the window cleaning side, but also the inspection services side. I mean, the inspectors have to go on the side of the building also and inspect every inch of the facade. We're running out of people who want to do that as well. And so what we're left with is the company being in amazing timing that as a workforce is transitioning, we can present a solution that augments this sort of continuing workforce that exists. So I'm a window washer. I have now have the opportunity to learn new skills as an operator instead of the ones going scaffolding down I've seen when I've been in hotels and high-rise buildings working, and all of a sudden you see the friendly window washers, right? Now it's going to be the window washer and Osmo together? Maybe for a short period of time. We do envision that the human labor is going to stand on the rooftop permanently and that Osmo will be on the basket alone. Now, in a city like New York City, where there is very high regulation, although that's our vision, there's also the understanding of reality. The reality is we need to show Osmo is safe and capable to earn the right with the Department of Labor to operate Osmo independently in the basket. So currently, we still have an operator, really just a human in the basket who isn't doing anything, but is monitoring, making sure that everything's operating safely and can report back that everything is safe. But in a market like our home market in Tel Aviv and Israel, we don't have anybody in the basket because the technology doesn't require it. So we'll continue to build trust, whether it's with end users or buildings of the technology and building up their ability to work Osmo less and less with our intervention and being able to operate independently of us. But really from the viewpoint that one day, the high labor skilled force that's required to go on the facade today can be retrained, upskilled, and paid more for operating Osmo and other robotics products potentially. At the end of the day, we want to retrain the workforce. These guys are incredibly brave that do go on the side of the building every single day, and it's time that somebody gave them a hand. Hey there, Istana. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like William Santana Lee and Stacey D. Stevens, co-founders of Nightscope, a company that is focused on combating crime in America with autonomous robots. So many people come at us 
Like, we're worried about the robots. We're worried about the robots. Where we sit, we worry about the humans. Yes, the technology has a bunch of opportunities and some concerns primarily driven by 30 years of Hollywood. Like, having to watch all these movies, all these science fiction movies, this is going to end very, very poorly. And my assertion is, yes, it is going to end very, very poorly for the criminals and terrorists. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. Osmo, just to break it down, is doing more than cleaning. It's intelligent and its ability to learn facade of the building, can report back data. Can you break it down a little bit more why this is important for building operations, for maintenance, security? So what Osmo does from a number of different standpoints, first non-technologically, is provide sort of a safe and reliable way to track work that's being done. So as Osmo does get on the facade of the building, we are able to pull analytics from a daily operation and share exactly what's happened. On the technical side of Osmo, we do use a LiDAR camera. A LiDAR is used by a few electronic vehicle manufacturers to help understand the environment around the car itself. We use a LiDAR camera to understand the facade. One of the unique things about our technology is the use of computer vision and AI. So by having Osmo get on more and more facades, understand more and more environments, we're really preparing Osmo to scale to more and more buildings more efficiently. So as Osmo does learn each facade that it's operating on, it also makes the next building and the building after that more efficient from an algorithmic standpoint. Are there height restrictions or any skyscraper? I mean, what is the extreme distance? And we talk about EV cars and the distance they go. How high can Osmo operate at? So some of it's opportunity, right? So we feel internally that there's no building that Osmo shouldn't be able to work on in the long run. Now, we've only been on buildings that go up to 57 stories to this point in our history. So we haven't been on an 80, 90, 100 floor building, but we see no reason from a technological standpoint that Osmo shouldn't be able to operate in the same way as a 57 story building. Now, we do typically focus on facades, no matter how high the window sills are, that are at least flat for the time being. We do tons of testing on complex geometry and really helping the LiDAR and the computer vision get better in that way as well. But for the time being, there's plenty of market opportunity to get the business and the commercialization going on facades that are flat, but might have 8-inch, 10-inch, 12-inch windowsills. That's not like a blocker or stopper for our technology. And each facade is different and unique to a certain extent. And that's why really focusing on an algorithmic approach to window cleaning is necessary because no two buildings are the same. And so you need to have a system that can learn and adjust as it's going. And how much does weather factor, winter versus summertime in cities like Chicago that might have more fierce winters and other countries like Dubai that have severe heat? How much does weather factor into the productivity of Osmo and being able to go to work, so to speak? It's a great question. And we're not actually changing sort of the seasonality of an industry in any given market. So, you know, in New York, because traditional window cleaning and Osmo both use water, 
nobody wants water to freeze on a window during the winter because that obviously doesn't leave the window looking clean and clear and crisp. So we are still confined by weather in that sort of manner in terms of when it is below freezing. We shouldn't be operating Osmo the same way that a traditional window cleaning operation would not operate either. Now, when we think about the global picture, though, New York City has the opposite window cleaning season to a market like Sydney or Brisbane, Australia. So it's not that our business can't be a full year business, but certain markets will still have seasonality to them, really because nobody wants ice dried on their window, because that's not a clear picture to look out of for your tenants. So when I was looking up the job descriptions, they went everywhere from $20 to I think the highest paid one was $35 an hour that I saw. How much does it cost to operate Osmo? It's a great question. And what's not apparent in those job descriptions, Donna, is the other costs that a service provider has to bear other than the cost for the employee. So in New York City in particular, there are labor laws related to scaffolding that make insurance premiums for working at heights on a scaffold incredibly expensive. So while the employee might only be receiving between 20 and $40 an hour, the actual costs to the company of running a window cleaning operation are significantly higher than that. So for Osmo, essentially with each body that can be removed from a window cleaning operation, it should be about a 20% profit margin increase for our customers. And our business model does dictate that we're not going direct to building and we're actually selling into the service provider. So I mentioned earlier on the podcast that our customer is a company called Platinum Inc. Platinum is the leading building maintenance services company in New York City. They don't just have a window cleaning division, but a building maintenance unit division and other services that they provide to buildings as well related to metal, stone, wood, and being able to augment their workforce in a market where they already own one contract for 65% of the Class A real estate here in New York City is a tremendous opportunity for them to not just expand their footprint as a dominant market leader here in New York, but potentially be working with us to help us expand, to help them expand to other areas as well, where they don't have to be as reliant on human labor. So Osmo is how much faster than the traditional window cleaning? If you time two human teams cleaning, you'd get two different results. So I've timed way more than two human teams cleaning, and I've never gotten a result that Osmo is less than two and a half times quicker than a human cleaning team. We've gotten results that are higher than that, but at the end of the day, we don't need to be more bullish or aggressive in our metrics than saying two to three times as fast because a window cleaning operation on skyscrapers in New York could take you four months. If we can just go two times quicker, you're saving significant amounts of time. So at the end of the day, there are companies out there that say they're six, eight, 10, probably 20x faster than traditional cleaning. Now, they don't actually have products in market. They're not really commercializing their business, and they're mostly just concepts. But I don't think they've learned yet that you don't need to be 20 times quicker. You just need something that's reliable, works a little bit faster than what, what we have today. And you're going to save a lot of people, a lot of time and a lot of money. So it's faster. Let's talk about safety and safety in terms of the human factor. Is Osmo safer? Yeah, sure. I mean, without the human component on the side of a building, it's infinitely safer. Yes, if there's a mechanical failure in the crane and a whole basket drops, which is beyond a rare occurrence, and I have never even actually seen that happen or heard of that happening myself, 
there can still be events for people that I guess are on the street level. But at the end of the day, there are great safety regulations related to the cranes, how their weight distribution works, and the sort of ropes and tethering that are required to actually get approval to have a crane in New York City. And so most of the safety incidents that do happen are really because of human error and how they're being operated more so than anything else. Someone hasn't strapped in appropriately. Someone hasn't attached to a safety line. And back to that job description you mentioned where it said no training required, we'll train you on site. I mean, those guys are heroes for even attempting to be trained and go on the side of the building without formalized training. And it's something that just can't continue on in this way. And while we have great safety regulations in the United States and mostly in Western Europe as well, there are many other parts of the world where safety incidents unfortunately do happen every single day. And if you do have a Google News alert on for some of these safety incidents, you would be surprised at how many there are. Is the platform secure? So Osmo's gathering, collecting this data. Where is Osmo serving this data up to? And what does it look like? What does this data knowledge look like? And is it hackable? As of today, we don't transmit data out live. So there is a computer that Osmo is connected to inside of the robotic table where that data is stored and we can export that data manually for the time being. Obviously, eventually we do want to have it automated where data is transmitting constantly. And there are ways to do that securely with things like encryption and otherwise. But at the end of the day, if we want to re-envision how an industry works, it can't just be the tool that the industry uses. In the same way, as we re-envision facade access and starting with window cleaning, changing an industry can't just be how we do it. It needs to change the experience for not just the service provider, but also the developer and the property manager as well. We want them to be able to sign into a dashboard and understand exactly what work has been done today, what cracks in caulking or aluminum or HVAC leakages have been noticed, help them build preventative maintenance plans, help them build different building operational strategies because they're getting more work done more quickly and aren't going to be so time constrained. So in a market like New York, if you have a local law 11 inspection, which is what the inspection law is called here, really for that window cleaning season, you're incredibly cramped on time because you got to clean your windows, do your inspection. And those two things alone could take you six to eight months, regardless of what other repair work you need to do, regardless of if you need to go replace any windows. And all of a sudden, the only season that you have to do this becomes incredibly cramped for time. And if you get a few rainouts, if you get a few days that are too windy and regulation says you can't go over the side of the building, above 25 miles per hour winds, all of a sudden it becomes really hard just to get done what you're required to get done by your tenant obligations and regulation. So what is your message to real estate developers, property management that might just be a little old school and not ready to automate? Will they be left behind? We want to have a very inclusive view of the world. So of course, we don't want to leave anybody behind. But at the end of the day, there are developers and property managers that seem to be more on the forefront and technologically advanced. And so there are the innovators and the first movers. There are some people who would prefer to let other people move first and move more conservatively. And you see that in any industry that you operate in. But at the end of the day, when we deliver great technology to great developers, to great sites and continue to raise the profile of what we're doing. We do believe there's an element of snowballing that can occur as long as we continue and our technology continues to perform the way that it has. 
So the pressure is still on us to deliver. We wouldn't have it any other way as a startup. I mean, I'll bet on my team all day, every day, because we built a really fantastic team to get this business really moving. But at the same time, there's always going to be your first movers. And then there's going to be the people that do move slowly and want to continue with an antiquated way of doing things. But it really does take developer buy-in, property manager buy-in, facade consultant buy-in, BMU manufacturer buy-in, and service provider buy-in to really make this as successful as we want. And coming into this company, I didn't know half of those types of companies existed, candidly. As you dive into this industry, they all play a role, and it's important to be transparent and truthful with them all. This is a global problem. And you stated on your site and in your materials that this is a $40 billion window cleaning industry. Where do you see the market in the next 10, 20 years? Do you think that we look up, we'll see more Osmos around the world, particularly in Manhattan, the superhero of robotic window washing? I certainly hope that you will. But where do I see the the industry growing? That right now, I don't see an actual real slowdown in new construction and new development. So what that's telling me is there's still only going to be more and more windows to clean. You know, in cities, there's major construction happening, not just on a regional basis in the U.S., but really on a global scale as well. There was a Wall Street Journal article about these towers that Saudi Arabia would like to build that are parallel towers that stretch 75 miles long. I mean, it's an incomprehensible project, 75 miles of a singular building to house 5 million humans in one building. But at the end of the day, this is a global opportunity. The rate of development continues to increase in many places around the globe. The labor force does not continue to increase in many places around the globe. And we're in the right place with the right technological implementation, surrounded by great partners, just trying to do the right things each and every day to put us in the right positions. So we we do feel incredibly optimistic about where we are, but we feel that we've earned that optimism through our hard work. Want to see Osmo in action? We were mesmerized by Skyline's video of Osmo working at dizzying heights on the side of a skyscraper in Tel Aviv. The video can be found in the show notes. Skyline Robotics plans to expand into other areas too, automating even more jobs, especially the dull and dirty ones. Check their website for more info about the company and the future of the automated workforce. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>